I, I teach anthropology at Wheaton College and, uh, you know, dealing mostly with undergraduates in the climate today, uh, parents and students are more conscious than ever of uh, the, the value of, of their education and are they getting their money's worth. And the liberal arts, you know, a classical sort of broad-based education um, can, be a, can be a bit of a sell. Uh, it's a tricky thing to sort of make the case these days as students are worried, what am I going to do with this degree after I graduate? Where am I going to go with this? Now, fortunately, Wheaton's in a, in a strong position. You don't have to worry about us. We're doing okay. Um, but once these, uh, once these good students arrive on campus, they still are you know, asking this question, what am I going to do after this? Um, now, there are some majors on, on campus that have a little more of a kind of built-in career trajectory kind of a thing, um, business or applied health science or education. They still get a liberal arts education at Wheaton, but, but those majors seem to have a little more like, oh, yeah, we know where you're going to go with that. Other majors, other sort of typical majors of the liberal arts tradition, history, um, English literature, um, philosophy, you know, they lack that sort of next step identity, so we have to be a little more clear with our students. What are you going to do? You know, how are you going to translate this into something beyond Wheaton? Well, anthropology, it kind of suffers a double whammy um, of not only being a discipline that lacks a kind of clear next step identity, but also is sort of unknown to most students. What is anthropology? I, haven't even, I don't even know what that is. That's a, sort of a, a mystery to me. I had one student once who took a class and he said, I signed up for this class because anthropology sounded so college-y. <laughs> Okay, good. Well, welcome to class. Uh, um, so I would suggest that anthropology is one of the, the top two or three disciplines that get that what are you going to do with that kind of line, you know, from the, from the worried grandmother at Thanksgiving. Um, so, but as an anthropologist at Wheaton College, I, I have an ace up my sleeve. Uh, Wheaton is known, uh, you know, for an, we have a, well, a number of well-known graduates, including uh, Nathan Hatch, the president of Wake Forest, is a Wheaton graduate. And... Uh, Horror film auteur Wes Craven is a Wheaton graduate, if you didn't know that. Um, uh, speaker of the House, former Speaker of the House, Dennis Hastert. You know, so we've got a few people we can, we can trot out. Um, but when people ask me, you know, what can, what can I do or what can my child do with a major in anthropology, I can say, well, one thing it can do is lead to a career in worldwide evangelism because Billy Graham was an anthropology major at Wheaton College. So that's always my favorite. Uh, I can say, yes, everybody can be Billy Graham. Um, but, but not only uh, was he an anthropology major at Wheaton College, he gave us one of the greatest quotations that anyone has ever, ever gifted the discipline of anthropology. Um, when in, in 1986, he was interviewed by Parade Magazine, and he was 68 at the time, and they asked him, uh, what is something looking back over your life that you wish you would have done differently? And he says, I wish I would have gotten more education. If I could have, I would have gotten a PhD in anthropology. Uh, to understand the race situation in this country better. Now, those of us uh, Christians who, who teach anthropology, we've known about this quotation a long time. We put it up on bulletin boards every year. Uh, but it, it prompted me to think more about and want to know more about uh, Billy Graham's relationship to anthropology and specifically how it intersected with his ideas of race. And being at Wheaton College, where we have the Billy Graham archives, and, and um, now having a chance to come here to Billy Graham's uh, home country, this is the, the first time I've had a chance to speak about uh, this work that I've done on Billy Graham. So this is a, a perfect place to, to be invited to do this. Um, I had a chance to, to uh, investigate this more. It turned out that in the archives at Wheaton, we actually had his Introduction to Anthropology textbook on the shelves. I was able to 
pull that out. And, and it turned into a, a project that in some ways is a kind of one-off thing. This, this work that I'm going to present tonight uh, is coming out in an article in March. Uh, so you're getting a little sneak preview here. Uh, but it, it does connect to my interest in sort of what anthropology has to say to the church generally. So for my talk today, uh, much, of, much of what I'm going to do is just give you the, the history. I think it's a fascinating story, and I hope it will illuminate some of the things about anthropology and the ways, the ways in which anthropology has intersected with the church uh, historically in the United States. Uh, but I, but I want to end um, or bring it to a point of talking about why I think anthropology remains relevant, in fact, is, is in perhaps um, more relevant for the church today than ever. So, first part is uh, anthropology, Wheaton College, uh, Billy Graham, and, and where, that, where that story starts. Um, like many liberal arts colleges founded uh, in the mid-19th century, Wheaton College began as a loosely sectarian school, hewing to the dominant Christian commitments common in higher education. Wheaton was rooted in abolitionist principles, co-educational egalitarianism, and following a few flirtations with denominational affiliations, we were Wesleyan for a little bit, we were congregational for a little bit, didn't work out. So we just stayed generally uh, evangelical. Um, but unlike most of the other schools, like Oberlin and others that were founded at the time, Wheaton, of course, has remained committed to its Christian identity, thanks to our second president, Charles Blanchard, who made strong commitments within the charter of Wheaton to, um, to keep it Christian in perpetuity. Anthropology, interestingly, was first introduced as a major at Wheaton in 1937, which is uh, extraordinarily early for liberal arts colleges in the United States. It wa there wasn't one place I could go to find information about when departments of anthropology were founded in the United States, uh, but even just sort of going college to college, I didn't find very many that had a department of anthropology prior to 37. There are a few, but uh, even some like Amherst and, and uh, Davidson and others that are well known. 60s and 70s was when their anthropology departments were founded. Um, it began as the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology, staffed by three faculty members, uh, two full-time, one part-time, anchored by a colorful professor named Alexander Grigolia, a figure who would prove pivotal in Billy Graham's experience uh, a few years later. Grigolia came from a wealthy Russian family fighting on the side of the czars in the years leading up to the 1917 revolution. As the revolution overthrew the old order, Grigolia left his family, and he had a very colorful story of sewing the family jewels inside of his coat and smuggling them out and using them to fund his um, education in Europe, where he studied at the University of Berlin and later at the University of Paris studying um, um, anatomy and uh, medicine. He immigrated to the United States in the early 1930s uh, and decided to continue his education, but now moving from medicine to the newly established discipline of cultural anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. During his studies at Penn, uh, the young Gregolia was, also, was converted to the cultural anthropology of Franz Boas and also converted to conservative Christianity. Boas, uh, Franz Boas now was something of a rock star in the United States. He had founded anthropology at uh, Columbia University, and he was widely known as a public intellectual who often spoke with uh, W.B. Du Bois, uh, Thomas Fortune, and others, particularly uh, about issues of race and racism. The uh, department at Penn almost hired Boaz in 1897, two years before Boaz founded his department at Columbia. Um, but it remained aligned, even though they didn't get Boaz himself, they remained aligned with his type of anthropology. So when Gregolia showed up there, he drank deeply from this uh, vein of anthropology 
that was, uh, that was much more about sort of historical development of culture rather than about the racialization of culture. That was the dominant, uh, one of the dominant explanations for cultural diversity in the 1930s was scientific racism that said different races have different capacities for culture and that explains the diversity, as opposed to Boaz who said no, it's history and the sort of ecology of various cultures that explains the different diversity and that um, racial hierarchies are actually scientifically invalid. Gregolius' path uh, to the process of Christian conversion we don't know much about. Um, his personal account is mentioned briefly in a Wheaton College publication in 1941 where he refers to a group of uneducated men that, that he befriended that got to know him as he was a sort of lonely immigrant in Philadelphia uh, leading to his conversion in graduate school. But we know that, that even before he finished his degree, this type of Christianity that he had was very uh, attractive to Wheaton College and that he was very comfortable in the kind of Christianity that he found there. In 1936, Wheaton College President uh, J. Oliver Buswell invited Gregolia to take up a position teaching one section of French and one section of anthropology as a part-time position at the college. Uh, we don't know what prompted Buswell to reach out to Gregolia, how that contact was made, uh, but very quickly, um, Gregoli established himself as a, a presence at the college. Um, Buswell really wanted to see Wheaton College develop its intellectual capacity, and so he found somebody like Gregoli who had a prestigious degree and, who's, and who was well-educated in a variety of fields, and he fit very well with what uh, the college was trying to do. In the spring of 1937, Gregolia proposed then, after being there all of five months. This is a pretty gutsy kind of move for a new faculty, part-time, French, anthropology professor to do. Proposed uh, the creation of the anthropology department uh, with courses across four fields of cultural anthropology, linguistics, archaeology, and physical anthropology. And in March of that year, Buswell wrote to Gregolia to inform him that the trustees voted to appoint him to full-time uh, position of assistant professor of anthropology. So by the 37-38 year, the Department of Anthropology Archaeology was established, requiring 20 hours of coursework, including a four-field introduction to anthropology, ethnology, primitive religion, and biological and cultural evolution of man. The description of the evolution course is interesting. Uh, it reads, the various theories on the origin and growth of the human race, the evolutionary and the Christian viewpoints carefully considered. This is the only cultural or biological anthropology course with an explicitly apologetic aim in its course description. The physical anthropology course is described simply as an extensive study of human anatomy, embryology, pathological de derivation, and comparative anatomy um, of living and extinct human races. But Gregolia, um, for one of, the, one of the prime reasons that he wanted to bring anthropology into a Christian institution like Wheaton was to confront a secular, if not hostile, world uh, through the question of human equality and debunking the myth of racial hierarchy through an attack on naturalistic evolutionary theory. In 1940, uh, only three years after arriving at Wheaton, and that was the same year that Billy Graham showed up, Gregolia sent a letter to the newly installed president, uh, Raymond Edmond, outlining a dream to establish a school of archaeology and anthropology with a strong Christian spirit and scientific background. In a three-page letter, Gregolia outlines how he imagines anthropology as a four-field discipline relating to the Christian mission of Wheaton College. In particular, he stated the new program would address the racial question. Uh, the questions of origin development, the decline of human culture, dynamics and meaning of human, social, and spiritual culture, all these subjects which belong to the field of anthropology, I'm writing them, he said, in order to emphasize the importance of these subjects for Christian education. So this was the program into which Billy Graham stepped when he showed up at Wheaton College in 1940. Now, Billy Graham came to anthropology only in the second half of his uh, college career. 
He finished high school in segregated North Carolina. Uh, Graham began his education first at Bob Jones University, which was called Bob Jones College and was located in Tennessee at the time. But he found the college too strict, and they found him too worldly, so they parted ways uh, very soon after he got there. And he moved instead to uh, Florida Bible Institute in Tampa Bay, where he wanted to focus on biblical studies and preaching. Florida Bible Institute was a two-year program. And uh, in the second year of his program, he met a Wheaton trustee while he was caddying at a local golf course. Uh, and the trustee was impressed with young Billy Graham and, and his uh, preaching abilities and, and invited him to continue his education at Wheaton College. So in 1940, he moved to uh, suburban Chicago, which was undoubtedly a, a move to the moon for this uh, young Southern man, um, and uh, began his education there. Now, in his autobiography, Graham doesn't give a full account of his decision to major in anthropology, but he gives us a little window into his thinking. He says, first, I now wanted to get as broad a liberal arts education as I could before going on to seminary for a professional degree. Second, I considered the remote possibility that I might end up in the mission field, and a focus on anthropology would give me a liberal arts education in the best sense, obliterating any condescending notions I might have towards people from backgrounds other than my own. Third, Alexander Gregolia, the head of the department's new anthropology department, was popular among students. Dr. Gregolia ardently convinced us that the origins of the human race were not up from the ape, but down from the hand of God, as Genesis recorded. And then Graham adds one more self-deprecating reason for choosing anthropology. I was told it was an easy course, <laughs> and that the professor could not always read the student's writing on the tests. Okay, we'll take what we can get. Um, now, now, we don't know uh, everything that, uh, that uh, Graham's curriculum consisted of, uh, but for his required cultural anthropology course, Graham did read uh, Robert Lowy's An Introduction to Cultural Anthropology, the new and enlarged edition published in 1940. Lowy was also a student of Boaz and committed to historical particularism, as well as Boaz's opposition to racial hierarchies. In Graham's textbook, Lowy opens with the statement that all people, therefore, technically are cultured and the proper, study for s proper subject for study by cultural history. And the business of such a study is to define what sort of culture belongs to all human groups, past and present, and so far as possible, why their social traditions vary. Later in the same chapter, while reflecting on the extant view of the day that large racial groups do exist, so they did understand racial groups as being sort of scientifically valid, but Lowy concludes his presentation on these views with the statement, to sum up, at the present moment, we know nothing helpful about the inborn racial differences of man. Now, these are just statements in the book, and we don't know for sure whether Graham even read them, let alone um, you know, internalized them. Uh, certainly, the first quotation has echoes in that statement that I read earlier about obliterating condescending notions that he may have held. And the latter is consistent with uh, Graham's subsequent anti-racist views. The most helpful evidence, though, comes from Graham's own markings in the text. There's not a lot of marginalia in the book. It, it appears that Graham was not a consistent student. Um, chapter two of Lowy's book, entitled Hunting, Fishing, and Gathering, has by far the most notations. He underlined quite a bit in this chapter, but, but some, rather, some rather odd things. He seemed to be drawn to comparative facts. So we, he underlines, <laughs> salmon-catching Indians of British Columbia put up solid plank houses, and Shaluk kill harpotami, kill harp... Uh, kill hippopotami with a harpoon. I don't know why this particular fact jumped out to Graham as a student, but he found that fascinating. Um, first half of chapter five, which is entitled Fire, Cooking, and Meals, also has a, a great deal of marking. And then the chapter on farming contains three markings, two underlined passages and one margin notation. The rest of the book, with one important exception, is entirely without marks. And the one important exception 
uh, it comes in the introduction. Now, the chapters two and five that have the most markings are done in a kind of blue pen, so it looks like they might have been assigned at the same time or read together. Uh, chapter three, with just those few uh, marks, uh, was in a pencil. But then, in the introduction, in pink pencil, which incidentally I also found was the color used in his wife's uh, geology book. So maybe Ruth actually underlined for this forum, or maybe he borrowed it. I don't know. Uh, there was in one of the books a very cute note that she wrote to Billy saying, um, uh, Billy, please read Psalm 15 or something. Anyway, it was great. It was a nice note from her to, to Billy Graham. But this was the line that he, that he had underlined in pink pencil. As a result, absolutely pure races no longer exist. And this by itself makes it extremely hard to distinguish existing groups on a racial basis. So Graham's primary interest in anthropology, motivated significantly by his possible career direction into missions, was cultural rather than physical, but it appears that the scientific evidence against the existence of biologically distinct races made a very significant impact on him. Graham likewise gravitated to anthropological work that suggested a spiritual unity among humanity. In 1943, Billy Graham's senior year, the Wheaton student newspaper ran a short announcement about Graham with the headline, Graham gives seminar on human sacrificing. That's a great headline, isn't it? Um, and here's the little piece that was written. Surveying the practice of human sacrifice all over the world, Billy Graham delivers his senior seminar before junior and senior anthropology majors tonight at 8.15 in room E401. Entitled Study of Human Sacrifice in Cultural Life of Primitives and Its Importance for Apologetics, the discussion will show the striking similarities and parallels to the sacrifice of Christ, pointing out the craving in the human heart for satisfaction and removal of guilt, says Graham especially invited our students contemplating ministry or service in the foreign mission field. Now, this choice of a senior thesis topic made perfect sense in terms of his sense of a possible call and his already established uh, interest in evangelism. Though he never considered himself an intellectual, Graham's college education and his training in anthropology in particular convinced him that difficult questions about Christianity could be answered through the same scientific rationale as other problems. With Christianity as the authoritative framework for answering the difficult questions of social policy and ethics, Graham drew on the full corpus of his education to address what proved to be one of the most difficult social issues he would confront in his entire career. The question, of course, of how he, as a son of the South, baptized Southern Baptist and evangelist, should address the pressing questions of segregation, equality, and civil rights. So this next section is how he, how he did confront um, the question of segregation particularly, of course, through his uh, work in, the, in, in his uh, evangelistic crusades. Uh, after graduation, Graham spent some years trying to figure out his calling. So I know that you're, you're coming up to, to think about vocation. So those of you who aren't sure, you're in good company. Um, he, uh, through some contacts with the Wheaton uh, alumnus, Graham spent two years as president of Northwest Bible College in Minnesota, the youngest college president among the hundreds of Christian schools in the United States. And it was evidently a role to which he felt particularly ill-suited because after two years, he moved to a position with the growing evangelistic organization Youth for Christ, a group within which he had long ties going back to his pre-Wheaton days. He found the work with them, significantly involving preaching to large rallies and, and assemblies, much more in line with his own sense of his calling and abilities. By all accounts, however, and, and those of you who know anything about Graham, this will undoubtedly um, ring a bell, uh, it was his October 1949 Youth for Christ revival meeting in Los Angeles that really launched him to the public stage. As the head of evangelism for Youth for Christ, Graham headed to Los Angeles where he drew the attention of uh, media magnate uh, William Randolph Hearst. Hearst was drawn to Graham's patriotic zeal, his youthful religious fervor, and Hearst sent a, a now famous telegram to all of his newspapers reading simply, Puff Graham. By the end of the eight-week printing 
preaching stint that was originally supposed to be a three-week preaching stint, uh, Graham emerged as a national figure. And, and those of you who've seen the movie Unbroken, you might know that it was um, uh, uh, Zaffarini, the, the, the figure of the movie Unbroken, be rededicated his life to Christ at this 1949 uh, Los Angeles uh, Graham rally. So with the launch to the national stage, Graham found himself immediately faced, though, with the question of race, in particular around his increasingly popular crusades and whether they would be integrated in the still segregated South. A great deal has been written about Graham's complex relationship with race and the civil rights movement. In many ways, Graham's first five years in this national platform typified the rhetoric and actions of the so-called white moderates excoriated by Martin Luther King in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. Graham, a product of Southern segregationist culture, was raised with a comfortable racism of white superiority and Jim Crow social policy, and he publicly struggled to take a stand against racist policies that were politically defended at the time as local concerns to be adjudicated according to particular local cultural norms. He kind of waffled for several years, commenting on questions of racial discrimination differently in northern and southern settings, accommodating southern segregationist laws even as the situation grew increasingly difficult to ignore. So from 1950 to 1954, Graham was kind of engaged in this contradictory dance where he um, was speaking against uh, segregationist practices, sometimes quite uh, forcefully, and then allowing them to continue in other venues. Um, for example, uh, he spoke very clearly at a 1952 rally in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, stating that there, was, there should be no barrier between black and white. But then when he was confronted by the press, he kind of backed down and seemed to distance himself from, the, from his comments. In 1953, he did insist on integrated seating in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but then, a few months later, at his home state of North Carolina, uh, he allowed local organizers in Asheville to again arrange a segregated event. Uh, historian John Hopkins uh, notes that after this event, the Asheville Citizen Times published a letter from a local supporter asking, why have the so-called church workers and Christians in our city borrowed the colored people from the Billy Graham revival? Why make an example of the Negro because of the color of his skin? Is not his soul as important as yours and mine? Now, this letter didn't receive a direct reply from um, Graham, but just a week later, in his syndicated column, My Answer, uh, he addressed the question, does the Bible teach the superiority of any one race? And Graham gave an unequivocal answer, saying, definitely not. The Bible teaches that God hath made one blood of all the nations of the world. Anthropologists tell us that there are three great races, the Caucasian, the Negroid, and the Mongoloid. Anthropologists have come to two very important biological observations. This, of course, is a statement of the times. No longer would anthropologists make this statement. Um, but they would make this statement. <laughs> As he said, first, there are no pure races. Second, there are no superior or inferior races. We know from history that all people upon contact have crossed their genetically-based physical traits. We know from human anatomy that in fundamental structure, all people are identical. As far as biological man is concerned, what he's related to is his cultural environment rather than to any inherited ability or aptitude. There is no German race, only a German nationality. There is no Aryan race, only an Aryan language. There is no master race, only political bombast. Now, in 1954, with the Brown versus Board of Education decision, Graham was finally able to take a consistent stand against segregation because now he could just say, this is the law of the land, so no longer do I need to um, worry about the local uh, traditions because any segregation would be illegal. Um, he, he was able to uh, finally embrace the racial integration that he was inconsistently practicing, but seemed to be um, wanting to defend more consistently prior to that. What's most significant for our purposes are the ways that he continued to use anthropology to bolster his argument. As his ministry developed, Graham became a strong voice against racism, legal or cultural. 
In an article published in Life magazine in 1956, an issue highlighting morality and segregation approximately 10 months into the Montgomery bus boycott, Graham came out unequivocally against segregation and racial discrimination. He noted, quote, with many of these difficulties of integration, the sociologist, anthropologist, scientist, and legislator can help. Though throughout the article he leans primarily on biblical exegesis and anecdotes of various congregations and church leaders, he's very clear that the, quote, the whole weight of scripture is for treating all men with neighbor love regardless of race or color. Now, Graham doesn't always, of course, invoke anthropology as he's talking about race. In an interview in Ebony Magazine in 1957, Graham points to two things that changed his mind on the question of racial superiority. Uh, quote, a conviction gained from a constant study of the Bible that Christ opposed and fought racial bigotry and a conviction intensified by the world travel that prejudice gives America one of its greatest black eyes in the views of nations balancing the sincerity of democracy and communism. The juxtaposition of scripture first and the social consequence that follows uh, is a pattern in which cultural, social, and scientific evidence can always be interpreted, interpreted and practiced in terms of the scriptural and Christian theological frame, something that, of course, Graham developed throughout his ministry. Toward the end of his public ministry, Graham continued to identify racial discrimination as one of the most important issues facing the U.S. church. In 1999, the Baptist World Alliance met at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta for a conference on racism in the church, and although Graham wasn't present, he was the honorary co-chair of the event along with Coretta Scott King, and he published a short but strongly worded statement on the conference proceedings. His statement read in part, Racism may be the most serious and devastating social problem facing our world today. It divides humans and nations from each other. It is the root cause of many of the wars and conflicts that rage across our globe. Racism is a deadly poison which never brings good, resulting always in a bitter harvest of hatred, strife, and injustice. Tragically, the Church of Jesus Christ is not free from the sin of racism, and yet we should be at the forefront of demonstrating to humanity Christ's love and reconciliation. So that was just from 1999. I'm very pleased to know that uh, anthropology remains a part of the curriculum at, uh, at, at Southeastern. Uh, unfortunately, this isn't something that can be taken for granted uh, at all theological institutions around the United States today. Uh, in his plenary address just this past summer at the American Missiological Society, AMS president and anthropologist Robert Priest noted that during the time of Billy Graham's studies in anthropology, the discipline, of course, was considered central to missiology and mission work, and many programs held a prominent position for anthropology in their curriculum. In 1953, Robert Taylor, who was a Wheaton anthropologist, founded the journal Practical Anthropology, which would later be edited by Eugene Nida, an internationally prominent anthropological linguist. It was then adopted and rebranded as the journal Missiology, as we know it today, by the AMS in 1973. When the School of World Mission, now called the School of Intercultural Studies at Fuller Seminary, was founded in the 1960s, there were three anthropologists among the faculty several of whom had national reputations in the discipline. So the 1960s and 70s were really a high point for anthropology, at least in mission studies. But in spite of the recent past, and even as Christian anthropologists make significant contributions to the discipline, Robert Priest notes that, quote, at no time in the last 60 years has the future of missiological engagement with anthropology looked more bleak. Priest goes on to argue that with the rise of uh, neo-orthodoxy um, theology and, the, and the, the domination of seminary education by the humanities of theology, history, biblical studies, and philosophy, anthropology and the social sciences generally have, begin, have been marginalized or, or often are just treated as kind of suspect. Several prominent missiologists have written that scholars of mission need to be wary of being, quote, taken captive by social science. Theologians, prominent theologians such as Alistair McGrath have warned that uh, their discipline, theology, should avoid social science 
as partners in dialogue, keeping to philosophy and the natural sciences. This kind of antagonism, or at least a suspicion of anthropology and social science, is not a new phenomenon, as we can see from the history of Gregolia, uh, who identified this secular stream of social science as hostile to the claims of the gospel. But over the past 10 to 15 years, the exclusion of social science arguably has become more pronounced in theological education. And the at the same time, the argument can be made, at least I would make the argument, that such insights that anthropology can bring have actually never been more necessary to the church. The exclusion of anthropology can be seen in such straightforward things as hiring practices. In 1990, Fuller had three anthropologists in their faculty, Paul Hebert, Dan Shaw, and Charles Kraft. Now, when Dan Shaw retires next year, Fuller may have no anthropologists in their faculty, depending on who they hire into the position. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School has gone from two anthropologists to one. Um, only Asbury, I believe, continues to employ two PhDs in anthropology. And actually, I'm not, I'm not confident that that's true. No, I think that is true, because they, they just hired Sue Russell, and she has a PhD in anthropology. Among the CCCU schools, only five have a major in anthropology. Bethel College in Minnesota, which had three anthropologists and a robust major in 2000, has dropped the major and now has only one anthropologist remaining. Institutionally, anthropology is not in a strong position in Christian higher education. Yet, I would argue, anthropology is as needed as ever, perhaps more so, in order to do ministry in our culturally and socially complex world. For example, Graham's enduring connection of anthropology and ministry came in the area of race, which I think we can all agree remains a key area of concern in the entire United States. Just as Graham found himself swept into the civil rights movement attempting to dismantle the Jim Crow laws of the South, today many ministers, and, the, and certainly the work that many of you will be going into in your ministries, um, will find yourselves uh, needing to speak to a movement of protest and social unrest, seeking to expose and dismantle what legal scholar Michelle Alexander has called the new Jim Crow. She argues that the system of mass incarceration focused on poor, majority black and brown neighborhoods that's built on policies and legal decisions stemming from the so-called war on drugs emerged directly from the political maneuvers to attract a white vote being divided in the decline of the Jim Crow era. Today, many scholars argue racism is not manifest primarily in legal exclusion and race-based policy, but is culturally encoded in phrases such as the, quote, inner city, the, quote, war on drugs, gang violence, and, quote, illegal immigrants. Just as anthropology provided Graham with the intellectual tools to push back on biological arguments for white supremacy in the 60s, so today can anthropology offer the ability to understand and speak to the culturally embedded racism, contributing to mass incarceration, economic segregation, educational inequality, and racial tension in the United States and really in the global church. As the North American church continues to struggle to connect with millennials, with new immigrant populations, and with an increasingly diverse and urban demographic, the ability of every pastor to speak meaningfully, and I would say anthropologically, about race will become ever more important to ministry generally. Just as Grigoli and Graham saw anthropology as a resource for the church, we should also reject the idea that anthropology stands in opposition to theological understandings of the world. No question, there are certainly anthropologists who link the work of anthropology to naturalism and secularism. But both, I would argue, the methods and the theoretical premises of anthropology can be employed for the purposes of understanding social life, the construction of meaning, and the context for purposes of Christian ministry. And one example I would give is simply understanding secularism itself. Secularism, as a sort of cultural moment, has been identified by theologian John Milbank, of course, quite famously, as he begins his book, Theology and Social Theory, saying with this famous line, once there was no secular. And he's quite right. 
that the idea of the secular and the sacred is a cultural construction that emerges out of Enlightenment thinking and emerges out of particular institutional arrangements uh, in Europe and the United States primarily. Anthropologist Talal Assad uh, also uncovers, like uh, Milbank, but not from a theological point of view, from an anthropological point of view, the social and cultural roots of secularism in Enlightenment thought and colonial regimes. Assad notes that the cultural frameworks of, quote, objectivity have rendered religious explanations of social life invalid in the public sphere. He has a fascinating argument about um, blasphemy, and this is just as relevant as ever. He, he wrote in the wake of the uh, publication of the pictures of the, the Prophet Muhammad in the Danish newspapers in 2009, and he looks at this whole idea of blasphemy and what that means in a sort of Western secular context. And of course, it typically means a way of shutting down free speech. That's, it, it's sort of pitted in opposition to liberal democratic freedom. But he argues that for the Muslim, for the committed Muslim, in fact, the idea of blasphemy is much more about the way in which people take away freedom by trying to seduce people into giving up their religious values. And so he argues that there's a way in which this whole debate about blasphemy and free speech actually serves to sideline religion and doesn't allow religion to sort of de define itself in the public sphere. So the uh, historical and anthropological approaches reveal how assumptions about the existence of the, the secular can serve to sideline religious understandings of self morality, and public discourse. Of course, the most evident importance, I would say the most evident importance uh, for anthropology for ministry in the United States is in the area of the globalization of the church. I've spent this past several years um, studying short-term missions, and I had a book on, on narratives of short-term missions um, that came out in 2012, looking at the ways in which uh, North American Christians talk about these trips and the ways in which these narratives they create construct the kinds of experiences and the ways in which they understand their travels when they do short-term missions. I've just been amazed as, as I've talked with my students, just starting even in, in 2001, uh, the, the breadth and, and distance and, and exposure that they've had to the world through these two-week, you know, three-week trips um, around the world. And I, and I suspect for many of you who are involved in full-time ministry, you find that this is an expectation that your churches have, that, that your youth are going to go on these short-term missions, and it's got to be able to put that on your college application, so get those trips out there, right? Um, so these encounters that people are having um, are profound, but I found that in many cases, these travels actually have the ability to inhibit the prospects for members of our congregation to understand culture, poverty, and the global church. People who view their trips solely through the lens of interpersonal encounter are left unable to see the larger cultural and social structures at play in the places that they visit. The anthropologically astute pastor would be better equipped to translate the experiences of short-term mission for his or her congregation to prepare those Christians to travel, to develop partnerships with Christians in other contexts that I think could be truer in, spirit to the, to, in, in the spirit of partnership and Christian unity. For ministers moving into an era of increased global connectedness, diversity, political change, the perspective of anthropology offers opportunities to make sense of and communicate the nature of these changing realities to Christians and non-Christians alike. We're better able to understand our own place in the cultural context and communicate the hope of the gospel to the world when we have conceptual tools and scholarly vocabulary to assess and promote these understandings. Anthropology, along with its sister disciplines in sociology, political science, and economics is a powerful means of speaking to a hardened world, and one that I pray we will continue to employ for the purposes of Christ and his kingdom. Thank you. <laughs>